This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. We're having a little fun with our hot question of the day today. So there is an NBA game coming to town this week. And for the first time in years, it's not the Toronto Raptors, actually. So there's a game at Rogers Arena on Thursday. I don't know what McComb was talking about. There's no other game. There's just the Thursday game when we talked about this earlier. And it is the Los Angeles Clippers. So yes, Kawhi Leonard and his Clippers uniform uh, versus the Dallas Mavericks. So this has prompted a lot of discussion and, of course, reminiscing nostalgia about our Vancouver Grizzlies. I still miss them. I don't know about you. I loved having the Grizzlies here. I still have a bunch of t-shirts. And every time I wear a Vancouver Grizzlies t-shirt, and this just happened last week, undoubtedly three or four people during the day will say to me, oh, great shirt. Oh, love that shirt. And I think, yeah, we still do miss our Vancouver Grizzlies. Well, clearly I'm not the only one because there is a rally that is taking place on Thursday. They're trying to show support for the return of an NBA team full-time here in the city. So we're going to talk to the organizer of that rally coming up a little bit later on the show today about what has prompted her to do all of this. But for our hot question of the day today, we are asking you, hey, would you like to see the Grizzlies or something there because of course the name went to Memphis, right? Would you like to see an NBA team back in town permanently here in Vancouver? Do you say yes, of course, or no, this doesn't interest you. Hashtag not the North. Let me know. Go to simi at cknw.com to email me, but go online to cast your vote and you'll find that on Twitter at simi Sarah 980 or at CKNW, and uh, you can also call our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 331-2899. I view these preseason games as a bit of a test, that they're always testing the market to see, look, is this going to sell out? Is there a lot of enthusiasm? What's the mood like here? And I've gone every time there's a preseason game in the last four or five years, and it's a great atmosphere. We always talk about how the Canucks are the only game in town here, but would you like another game? Like We've got the Lions, we've got the Whitecaps, But, you know, we really are a Canucks town. Are we ready to have another basketball team back, do you think, here? Would you like to see that? Well, six weeks into the new school year, still no word or sign of really how it's going in the negotiations between the government and BC teachers. But as those discussions continue... The BC Teachers Federation is raising awareness about the 400 or so teaching positions across the province that are currently vacant. So what is going on? The BCTF says, well, other provinces can compete better for staff because they pay their teachers more. Uh, Let's talk more about these issues and what the holdup is now with the help of Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief in Victoria. Good morning, Keith. Morning, Simi. Now, we've talked about this periodically over the last couple of months, and it's always like, oh, there's still hope they're still hopeful. Are they still hopeful? Well, I mean, the fact that talks are continuing is always a sign for somewhat optimism, but having covered the TF contract rounds a number of times over the years, I'm never really that optimistic about uh, successful conclusion without some sort of mayhem to occur before we get there. And in the past, we've seen school strikes, lockouts, job action. We haven't seen that this year. There's no there's no strike vote in, in sight for the TF. I think they want to drag this out as long as possible, but certainly nothing this fall. But as we get closer to the end of the school year, uh, and, and the prospects of no deal being in place before then continue to be high, uh, then you have to start talking about potential school, uh, disruptions in the schools. The, the TF doesn't want to talk about it right now, but eventually I think they're going to have to get there because there's no sign that a tremendous amount of progress is being made at the the contract table on the issue of financial compensation. The, the employer appears to have taken off the table any notion of concessions when it comes to contract language. And uh, the letter that was sent uh, to the mediator asking the mediator to, re- to file a report, which we expect, I think, sometime next month, uh, is an indication that uh, the TF or the, the employer is willing to just have a rollover contract, just keep the contract in place and add a 2% plus 2%, plus 2% wage increase for three years. And so they're not, well, it really is all about money then. Uh, yes, um, the, uh, and it usually is in a lot of contract talks, but the TF is making the argument now, and they've made this before with some validity, that BC's teachers are amongst the lowest paid across the country, and the situation is exacerbated because BC has, particularly Metro Vancouver, has one of the highest costs of living in the country. 
So you sort of compound those two issues. You're not being paid enough, and then your rents are sky high, or, or your mortgages compared to the rest of Canada, and that makes it hard to attract teachers from other jurisdictions and to retain them and to keep them working in uh, the jobs in B.C. So it's, it is all about money. It's, it's about wages, and it uh, usually is at, uh, with the TF and the, and, the, and the employer once language is taken off the table. Right. Okay. And it seems like we always get to this point, right? Wherever there's so much hope about this. I was talking to a former president of the BCTF actually a couple of weeks ago, and it was his theory that, you know what, sometimes the BCTF has a tougher time with NDP governments than they do with perhaps a BC Liberal government. Well, yeah, the expectations, I think, are higher. That They, they, they think that the, the NDP is going to be more sympathetic and simply sort of capitulate to what the ETF is asking for, and that's just not the case. And further muddying the waters and worsening the situation to me is that the government's finances are suddenly teetering. Uh, mm-hmm. There is a decline in revenues. The last quarterly report downgraded economic growth significantly. Uh, Carol James has already started the proverbial belt tightening in government, cutting, uh, trying to eliminate all discretionary spending. It's going to get worse next year. So there's not a lot of money for to be had here. This is why uh, the government is going to be completely unwilling to go beyond the two, two, and two because it would trigger any any increase on top of that that is significant uh, would trigger the so-called Me Too clauses in other public sector union contracts, which is that if another union gets more than we than than is beyond the ma- the mandate, which is two, two, and two, then we get that as well. So another one percent across the board. Uh, for all unions is about $300 million, and the government just simply doesn't have that money, and it would almost be topple into deficit. And then you start compounding that year after year after year, it adds up to a significant amount of money. And the NDP is, uh, I think, displaying a bit of fiscal conservatism when it comes to balance and budget, just as the BC Liberal uh, predecessors did, which is, makes it even harder for the TF to get more than what is on the table right now. Right. So over in Ontario, we've heard today that the union representing high school teachers is about to hold a strike vote among their members. What's going on in Ontario, the belt tightening that they have there, does that help or hurt us in B.C.? That's a good question. I, I think it uh, it may actually help the NDP's argument because the NDP is certainly not cutting education or, or attacking education like Doug Ford, the Doug Ford government is in Ontario. I have relatives who are young teachers in Ontario, and they're just beside themselves over what the cuts they see in the education system there. We're not cutting the system in BC. In fact, the NDP has increased the budget of the, in the education system way more than the Liberals ever did on their watch, and they're hiring because uh, triggered because of that. Uh, uh, court decision on contract language restoring the old language has triggered the the hiring of uh, I think two thousand teachers in BC. So it's I think the the approach to education is quite uh, in stark contrast to Ontario, which is all about cuts, cuts, cuts. Education is being funded like it never has been before in BC, but it's obviously not enough still to fill all those vacant teaching positions uh, that the CF is arguing, again, right. with validity, that there's still a heck of a lot more teachers that need to be um, hired. And what's happening is they're backfilling vacant positions by taking specialist teachers out of their specialist positions uh, and putting them into regular classrooms to fill, uh, backfill uh, the teaching spots that are, that are left unfilled. Right. Is it possible that we just actually have a shortage of teachers, that there's not enough teachers out there? Yeah, there's not enough teachers. Um, we used to have a surplus of teachers for years. Now it appears we have a, a deficit in terms of teaching positions. There is this theory that a bunch of Ontario teachers are going to move to British Columbia because they're getting chopped in, in uh, Ontario. The TF is arguing that's probably not going to be the case because nobody can afford to live in Vancouver. But you know, if you're a teacher in Toronto who loses their job, uh, the cost of living in Toronto is just as high as it is in Vancouver. So I think uh, some teachers will be coming this way. But it's tough to get teachers to you know, go outside Metro into the interior in the north. Uh, not everybody wants to live there, and it can be tough to attract them there, particularly if the wages aren't that high. But this is not going to get solved at the negotiating table. I think the government's going to have to be a, little creative, be a little more creative to go beyond the pure compensation package and find other ways to uh, financially uh, incentivize teachers that don't go to the necessary the salary grid. There has to be, I think, special funds to allow teachers to uh, sort of dip into them to offset some living expenses. Do they have the ability, to, is there room to do that kind of thing now? I, I think there's a little bit of room on that. They've done it in the past. We've had a learning improvement fund. Uh, there can be, the, the TF has argued in the past, uh, pay for people's moving expenses, this type of thing. I think you can get creative at the bargaining table that can go beyond the salary grid. And other 
unions have done that as well. Uh, LPNs, I think nurses have done some creativity uh, measures in, in their uh, contract round, which was settled successfully. The TF is looking to sort of change the salary grid, so perhaps younger teachers get paid a little more at the start than older teachers maybe don't get a big pay increase sort of at the end of their careers. But again, there has to be negotiations, and my take on the TF contract tax over the years, there's actually very little negotiations that go on. Negotiations in the collective bargaining is a system of give and take, and there's very little evidence that the TF is ever sort of given. It's all about take, and it's uh, that's just not a way to get a contract done. So I think we're going to see a mediator file his report. Uh, he can recommend his, the terms of settlement. That will put pressure on the TF because he's not going to uh, recommend a settlement that goes beyond the, govern- the government's negotiating mandate. And so when he comes up with his recommendations, that will be put, put pressure on the TF to settle for that, but right. I don't think they will. Do we know when that is? I think it's, I think it's in November. I think it's soon, um, sooner right. than later. And uh, it's not like he's booked out. He's still the mediator, but uh, he, the employer wrote to him saying they want him to file a report uh, with his views of what's happened in this dispute. I don't think it's going to be good news for the TF when he when he files his report. I think he's going to be critical of them. Ooh, okay. Well, we'll be talking to you again then, I take we it. Will. Keith, thank you. <laughs> All right, again. Okay. That's Keith Baldry, Global's Legislative Bureau Chief in Victoria, updating us on the teacher you know situation, the negotiations with the government. They've been going on and on and on. Remember, we kept hearing that, oh, they wanted a deal by the end of the school year. Well, that was months ago. Oh, then they were going to take the unusual step of negotiating over the summer. That didn't get them any closer. Now here we are into the middle of October. And as Keith said, they're working with a mediator to try to kind of find some middle ground. But it doesn't look like that is happening. I would be really curious to hear from parents and teachers out there. This is the place for Grizzlies basketball. Doug Boyer, Jay Triano, and Lee Powell. Local and the best. This is the place for you. CKNW. November 1995, the NBA comes to Vancouver, and it happened on CKNW. Batted outside, picked up by the Grizzlies. Bibby dies for it, now Dickerson's got it. Brings it up court, looks right, here comes Sharif. Sharif with a can opener jam. He's been adopted by Vancouver. Thank you for trusting us to tell the stories of our city. This is 980 CKNW, celebrating 75 years. Oh, that was such a pivotal moment in the last 75 years of CKNW history. It was, of course, the home of the Vancouver Grizzlies. Well, you know, the Grizzlies are still top of mind for a lot of people out there. It's been so many years since we lost our NBA franchise, but they are gone, but they are not forgotten. In fact, one local filmmaker and a Grizzlies superfan is hoping to start a movement to bring a team back. It's Cat Jamie, the filmmaker behind the award-winning documentary Finding Big Country, which if you haven't seen it, you absolutely should check that out. Uh, but uh, she is with us now to talk more about what the plans that she has for this week. Hi. Hello. Thanks for having me. I got to say that uh, that clip you guys just played got me really emotional. It's, it was, it was okay, so come cool on. to hear how, that. Cat, how old were you? though when the Grizzlies were here. I was six, but, uh, you know, I still, some of my fondest memories and I was 12 when they left. So they, you know, still had left a lasting impression and definitely I'd say shaped, uh, shaped, you know, who, who the person I am today. She's wearing her Vancouver Grizzlies yeah, jersey see, today I'm for sure as well. Repping, uh, my Bryant Reeves jersey. <laughs> oh, look at you! You saw your big country jersey. Did you get him to sign it I when did. you finally tracked him down? I wish everyone could see this, but I, I do she have. His, yeah, I turned around. Uh, he did sign this jersey. <laughs> what and the the documentary is so funny because like anybody who was ever a fan of the Grizzlies at the time when they were here knows. He wasn't exactly your most open, like, big superstar who seemed like he loved Vancouver. Mm-hmm. But from when you met him, you said he, th- he thinks of Vancouver very fondly. Oh, yeah. He's, uh, you know, he's such a, he still loves Vancouver, talks super fondly about his time here. He's just not someone who loved the limelight. Um, and I think just his, you know, he, he didn't, t- he didn't look like the typical basketball player. And so that's why he kind of became the scapegoat for what happened. But, uh, no, he was a, a, you know, amazing human being, amazing player. And, um, you know, I think Bryant would get on board with this movement to bring the Grizzlies back to Vancouver. You've got another actually documentary you said that's coming out today. I is do. that right? Yeah. So we have a, a, a short documentary called We the West that's dropping today. It's a Telus original. Um, and it just, uh, tells a story of four other super fans that I 
met through Finding Big Country because um, I was amazed to find that I'm I'm not the only I'm not the only heartbroken obsessed Grizzlies <laughs> fan. You know, 25 years later, there are more. <laughs> there, we're we're out there. <laughs> you are out there. It's been. 2002, did they leave? So 2001. 17 years. So it's been 18 years 17, since they left. Years. All right. So yeah. almost 20 years after they left. So in recent years, there's always been an NBA preseason game mm-hmm. in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. This year, for the first time, it's not the Raptors aren't coming, mm-hmm. but it is the LA Clippers and the Dallas Mavericks. And you've got some plans for this. We do. You know, every year I go to the exhibition game. I'm super excited. I come, no matter who the Toronto Raptors are playing, I come decked in my Grizzlies gear with my Grizzlies flag with a poster that says we the West bring back the Grizz Um, and I've always (laughs) wanted to try to you know get a group of people you know doing the same thing and so um, I've made so many friends uh, again through Finding Big Country those in the basketball community and we sort of this is a joint effort a team effort um, from a a bunch of various super fans and we're planning this together so we're asking people to come to Rogers Arena at 4.30pm decked out in Grizzlies gear um you know, with some fun signs, if you if you want to make some fun signs. Um, and this is just, you know, a fun, peaceful, positive event to show the NBA how how great our fans are here and to show hopefully potential investors like you guys got to get on board this because we need us, you know, we deserve a second chance. And and the time is now, you know, Kat, it's interesting, though, because there's old, a lot of older people like of my generation who mm-hmm. did invest their time, their money, their love in mm-hmm. this team and still feel very bitter about the way it ended. And I even got a few emails when I was talking about this day from people who are saying, no, thanks. I am not giving the NBA any more of my time and money <laughs> after the way they left us. True. I mean, I feel, I, I, I think you're right. I feel like there's, um, I was at an age when I could you know, I have just fond memories exactly. of the Grizzlies yes. here. There are a lot of people after Finding Big Country who, you know, were a bit older than me who came up to me and were like, why would you make this film? You know, because it such, opens up painful yeah, memories for people. And, and, but I just remember, I just remember this magical time and being able, like walking to the GM oh. place and like hearing the music. And like, that was my gateway to dreaming. Like I wanted to be the first girl to play in the NBA. Um, and the Grizzlies just inspired me um, to, 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 to be that. Those of us yeah. Yeah, of a certain age, what we really remember is being betrayed <laughs> and how hurtful that was when they told us, no, the Grizzlies aren't going anywhere and then literally turned around and left the True. very next day. But what if we could do it better this time? And what if they we could do it better and they stayed and we could have that for That'd this next generation of athletes? So that's what I want. That's what this whole movement is about. Do you think there's an appetite out there for that? I 100% do I, I I truly believe there's an appetite, there's an audience, and there's a market, and you know I'm not naive to think that this is going to happen overnight, but this is just the start of getting the balls the ball rolling. Do you think Vancouver is a viable market? Like, do you think that's even considered at yeah, the higher levels? I mean, I I do think so. Um, I I. I do believe that, you know, David Stern says that his biggest regret is moving the team from from Vancouver. So I do think there's a market here. I do think that Arthur Griffiths was onto something years ago. And, you know, what, um, you know, I knowing his story as well and the risk that he took and what it took to bring a team to Vancouver is incredible. Um, and so we just need more visionaries like him now um, oh, to bring a team. She threw that gauntlet down, right? We need some visionaries <laughs> yeah, out there. Yeah, we do. So what kind of feedback have you gotten for the rally? You know, um, really positive stuff. You know, so, uh, f- for sure you got some people saying, you know, you know, Seattle deserves, deserves a team. They back do, first. though. And they I, do. I, I'm not arguing with that. I, I think that Seattle does deserve a team. And I will say, yeah, for sure, even before Vancouver does. But in the process, why not tag Vancouver along there with them? Well, that's how we got it in the first time, we tagged right? On to because Toronto. we tagged on to Toronto. Exactly. And they figured if we're going to do one, we might as well do two. We could do it again. All right, so we're going to see how this goes. So once again, what are those details? So 4.30 p.m. at Rogers Rogers Arena um, by the Roger Nielsen statue. Uh, Bring your white rally towels, your Grizzlies gear, your swag, your energy, your positive positive vibes and let's just have a good time because the stuff still sells too oh, yeah. the Vancouver like, Grizzlies they will sell it in fact every other preseason game I've been to they sell yeah, Vancouver yeah. Grizzlies merchandise in, uh, in, when I was in New York a few years ago I uh, Mike Bibby's jersey was sold out because I, I wanted to, to get one so yeah. it's still not even in Vancouver like you go to New York you go to LA you'll see people rocking Grizzlies gear oh sure now they do yeah now they do <laughs> but yeah all those players who wouldn't come and that's the other thing there's still I think a lot of bitterness about the players who were like wouldn't come here who like trash talk Vancouver a lot has changed though I feel like Vancouver is definitely um is now on the map and athletes are now 
understanding and realizing how beautiful the city is and how great That's it would true. be. To Some of them here. vacation here now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, Kat, I mean, you have my support. I would Thank love you. to see this. <laughs> I hope you get a lot of people uh, to turn out for the rally. I know that I will definitely be checking it out. And otherwise, I'll see you at the game on Thursday. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> no problem. Uh, that is Kat Jamie, the rally organizer and the filmmaker behind the award-winning documentary, Finding Big Country. She and other Grizzlies fans would love for you to show up uh, outside uh, Rogers Arena on Thursday afternoon when they have this rally to support the return of the NBA. So what do you think? Would you be in for that? You can email me, Simi at cknw.com and check out our hot question of the day online. It'll be at simisara980 or at cknw on Twitter. You know, getting kids inspired is so important. Getting them thinking about what they want to do later in life and their careers is also tough for a lot of, you know, educators out there. And that's why I think this next program is so cool to talk about. So it's happening starting tomorrow. And it means that around 200 high school students from all over the Lower Mainland are going to have their chance to find out more about what it takes to be a cancer researcher. The program is called Mini Med School. It's actually taking place at BC Children's Hospital. We wanted to learn more about this. So joining us now is the dean of this year's Mini Med School, Dr. Rod Rasek. Dr. Rasek, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, no problem. Thanks for having me. So how did this come about? So Mini Med School is a great program that we've done uh, at BC Children's Hospital um, with the support of our foundation. Um, and essentially, it's, uh, it's giving uh, high school students the opportunity to come and hear directly from clinicians and researchers about a specific topic. And this year, the topic is cancer. Okay. And so how do kids get involved in this? Like, how do they know that, oh, I might be interested in cancer research? So it's uh, done with partnership through the schools. So essentially, the students uh, are nominated by teachers at high schools all over uh, the Lower Mainland, and they're selected uh, to uh, to be nominated for the position. And then it's first come, first serve, and it, f- it fills up very fast every year. And this year, I heard, was a record time to really? uh, fill, fill all the spots. That's so heartening to hear that, right? To know that there's so many high school kids out there who'd be interested in this. It's amazing. And every year, the students come are really top quality, and they're really engaged and uh, really want to be there. So it's a really exciting program. So then, Dr. Resick, what are we doing right to have so much interest in a program like that? I think it's just I think it's just getting word out there about the program, and and the kids these days are very motivated, and you you see them, and 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 for them to be able to come here directly from the researchers to see uh, you know what amazing work's being done here at the hospital. Hopefully, you know we inspire a few of them to either go down the research world or down the clinical world to uh, help you know potentially you know the cure for cancer maybe in one of these kids coming through the program. So, what are they going to learn? How does this work? So essentially, it's uh, weekly for uh, six sessions, uh, and at each session, they'll have a clinician and a researcher who will give them talks, and the talks are kind of cross-cutting on uh, topics such as the history of cancer, the latest trends in leukemia research. Uh, we actually have one of our residents come and talk about the practical, you know, what is it like to be an oncology resident uh, doing training in this area, uh, as well as talking about innovative therapies that um, are actually many of which are being developed right here in, in British Columbia. Yeah, what is BC like when it comes to being in the forefront of cancer research, what kind of work is being done in our province? Well, that's amazing uh, work that's really kind of going across, uh, you know, the world now, spreading from researchers that are working right here at BC Children's Hospital and the Research Institute. We've got uh, leaders in pharmacogenetics. We've got leaders in uh, bone marrow transplant. We're bringing CAR T-cells, which is a really exciting form of immunotherapy to British Columbia. These are all, uh, we've got amazing basic scientists. Our PhD scientists in our group uh, are fantastic and, uh, and all are working on, you know, finding just the next, next discovery that hopefully will, will make cure rates even higher and higher. Right. So for these kids then, I mean, they've obviously got high hopes, right? They want to be able to make a difference. But what what's ahead of them? Like on the road, if they want to be a cancer researcher, what does that take? It takes a, it takes a long time. So, yeah. uh, so essentially, uh, you know, whether you go down the PhD track or you go down the MD track, you're, you're talking about years of schooling uh, and, and needing to jump through, you know, be selected for each of that next round. You know, just getting into med school or getting to grad school are all huge uh, steps and so really, you know, you want pe- kids who are motivated, who are uh, doing it for the right reason, and having perseverance and resiliency to kind of get through all the st- steps. But once once you're there and you're actually working in the field, it's it's absolutely an amazing field to work in. Right? How competitive is it though? Oh, it's very competitive. I don't know if I'd get in if I was watching now. It's become really challenging. I mean, the, the candidates that come through with what they've done is just truly remarkable. I think, you know, you've got very motivated kids who are, who are really kind of, you know, pushing to, to learn and to make, uh, get experiences that will help them 
get into uh, into these programs. Right. So what does it take then at the high school level? Like, are they taking chemistry, biology? Are they taking AP classes? What do they take? Yeah, I mean, I think what I tell kids to do is just, you know, just f- make sure you want to do it. So take courses in biology and chemistry and, and such and, and really make sure, you know, it is a long road, whether you go down the research world or you go down um, one and go to med school, it's you have to really have the passion for it. So I always say, you know, get exposed to it. And that's why things like this mini med school is actually a really great program for them and that they hopefully they can see if this is the path they want. Um, that's one of the reasons we've got a resident come to talk is, you know, she's right there and uh, in that she's nearing the end of her training for this. And she can really kind of relate to the to the to the teenagers in our program to say, you know, is this something that's right for them? Right. It's not something that I guess it's not the type of career that you kind of fall into, is it? Like, do you have to have that in mind when you want to do this? Uh, yeah, I think, I think you know, uh, we, yes and no. I mean, I've, I have some colleagues who came through and ended up doing either cancer research or gone into med school through very different paths. And I think that's also exciting. I think, you know, there's, it's never too late to say that this is something you want to do. It's, uh, and so I have colleagues who went who did music degrees, for instance, and then came in through, uh, you know, and then came back and did all the science stuff to come in. So really? I think if, yeah, so I think if you have the passion for it, it's, it's really never too late. Um, so it's just all about finding your right path and, and making sure that medicine or cancer research or research in general is the path you want, because it, it is, it's a, it's a tough life to get through all the schooling and, and such to, to make it at the end. So you talk about high school students, but how, what age are we talking about here that are coming to mini med school? So it's mostly the senior grade. So grade 11, 12 um, is who, uh, and so, you know, people who are, who are approaching, you know, going into university soon, um, you know, whether they're going to science or such, you know, so it's, it's, it often is from my experiences, the kids coming are the ones who are interested in science and are thinking about research or thinking about a career in medicine. All right. So lots of work. Where can people find out more information? So there's a there's a website minimedschool.ca that uh, you can actually uh, uh, people are interested in attending for next year. This year is as I said completely sold out. Um, and, but even if you can't come in person, um, the videos of the sessions are going to be available on that website. So I encourage people who are interested and and if you wanted to come and weren't able to get in because I know there's a lot of disappointed kids who wanted to come. But yeah. uh, uh, it's it, you know what we say is you know go and look at the videos. We'll we'll have them available there so that you know we want to engage with as many as people as possible and. The other great thing is we're also got one-day sessions around uh, the province for people not from the Lower Mainland. So last year, I think they went to Williams Lake and Kamloops. And so we want to really make this accessible for people outside of uh, the Lower Mainland as well. That is so cool. Dr. Rasek, thank you for your time. No problem. Thanks for having me. Good luck with the school. That's Dr. Rod Rasek, who's the dean of this year's mini med school. Hey, don't say that kids today aren't doing anything, man. Now, I'm all one for following political stories, but I have to admit, even Brexit got the best of me. I just couldn't take it anymore. I couldn't take the boy you cried wolf, just the stopping, the starting. We have a deal. We don't have a deal. It's going to happen. It's not going to happen. I just gave up on it. And really, I'm one of the le- we're one of the lucky ones over here because technically it doesn't impact us as much as obviously it does to people in the UK and the European Union. Well, it's all still been going on, whether we've been paying attention or not. And now we're hearing that a European Union official who has access to information about what's going on says the major issue blocking a deal, which has always been how to handle the Irish border between Northern Ireland and Ireland, is actually close to being resolved. Is this possible? That's why we thought we'd better check in with Gavin Riley, political correspondent for Virgin Media Television in Ireland, uh, who we've been periodically checking in with. Gavin, thanks for being back with us. No problem, Siri. Good to catch up again. What is going on, Gavin? Are they close? Uh, it looks as if they're close. Uh, the funny thing about all of this, and we talked about all the speculation in the last couple of days about there maybe finally being a deal over the line. The funny thing is, is that nobody on the record is saying anything about what the proposals are or whether they're acceptable or not. And that is because the negotiators between the EU on one side and the United Kingdom on the other side have been in what they call the tunnel, which is basically this idea where uh, when we're in intense negotiations and we're trying to turn these broad theories into an actual, you know, a legal treaty that both sides can ratify, it's too complex and too technical. So we're not just going to keep running out and briefing the press and the reporters waiting outside every time we have a development. We can't do this whole running commentary. So they're in what's called the tunnel. And the funny thing is, is that we actually don't know how the tunnel talks have gone on. What we do know, though, is that having entered the tunnel at last Friday, they are still in there, which means that they're now, they've now been in there for four days and those negotiations are still ongoing. And one would have to think, given that there's supposed to be this big meeting of European leaders this coming Thursday to ratify whatever deal there might be, if they're still talking this late and if they're still trying to negotiate, it must be because they think there is a deal somewhere in the works. 
I just find this fascinating, Gavin, that what now they've decided that if they keep things private, they might be able to get a deal done. Whereas <laughs> up until now, they've been negotiating the public and firing salvos back and forth. Yeah, well, the, which is, I, I guess, a lot of the, the showboating that's been going on, a lot of it is, is playing to the gallery and trying to make sure that all sides are sort of kept happy. But I suppose the reason why the formal talks are happening now is because actually it was a very deliberate and in some ways a very clever strategy on the UK's part for the last uh, couple of months. Ever since Boris Johnson took over, the UK hadn't actually made any formal new proposals on paper for what they want to do with the Irish border. They had been like thinking out loud or kicking around these ideas and they'd been going into occasional meetings with the negotiators on the EU side and just floating ideas basically to see exactly, you know, flying a kite and seeing how it catches the wind. Um, But it's only then once they've kind of figured out, you know, exactly where the EU stood, then they said, okay, here is a plan that we're putting down on paper. And it's because of that plan that they put down on paper pretty late in the day, but nonetheless, with enough time to be discussed, uh, which is the reason why everything's gone so quiet for the last few days. Right. But what is the plan then? I mean, that's the problem is that for the Irish people on both sides of that border, they want to know (laughs) how is this going to work? Yeah, that's the difficulty about there, you know, there finally being a process to get a plan is that a lot of us don't know what it is. I mean, there is a little bit of uh, informed speculation. There was a meeting last week between uh, the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson and his Irish counterpart, Leo Varadkar, which seems to have set the whole thing in motion. And basically, as you rightly observed at the very start, it all revolves around what you do with the Irish border and how you manage to have they have two different trading regimes without there being a need for some sort of border checks or any kind of a CCTV or, or customs posts or any kind of infrastructure at all at the border because the Northern Irish border is such a contentious thing and because so many people within Northern Ireland identify as Irish and don't want to be fenced off from uh, their country of allegiance. Um, what we understand the solution to be, basically, is that Northern Ireland will still be part of the UK's uh, customs area. So basically anything that's imported from the Republic into Northern Ireland would effectively be considered an import and there would have to be tariffs and duties and whatnot. And we've all heard an awful lot about tariffs in the last few months because of what's going on in Washington. Um, But as a fudge, to avoid there being a need for an actual border check, that basically uh, Northern Ireland would collect tariffs uh, on the UK's behalf. And so that basically you would still have this land border, but that it would be applied, bear with me, at sea, so that if something is being imported from Britain into the Republic and it's going via Northern Ireland, right. um, that would still be subject to tariffs and customs of some sort. But Northern Ireland would collect the tariffs on the Republic's behalf at an airport or at a seaport so that you don't need to collect this when it actually gets to a land border. Now, that in turn is contentious because there are people there, you know, the unionist population within Northern Ireland who don't want there to be any interruption between themselves and Great Britain, who feel like that is a sort of an impediment to their trade and that they would, it adds extra complications to how they interact with the rest of the UK. Uh, that is a reasonable concern, but it's something which the tunnel talks are trying to tease out. But what it all boils down to, if it isn't too wild an idea, is that you would still, in, in effect, have a land border between the Republic and Northern Ireland, but that the border would be enforced at sea, if that isn't too widely surreal an idea to put out there. No, it's totally and completely surreal, because this is a land (laughs) border at sea. But, all right, I guess at this point, it's kind of like whatever works, right, Gavin? Well, this this is exactly it. That if it's a thing that works, I mean, these these talks have been bogged down now in the technicalities for for literally two and a half years. It is now well over three years since the UK voted to leave the European Union. The formal negotiation started in March of 2017. The UK was supposed to be gone out of the European Union seven months ago. The new deadline is that they want to be out at Halloween. And, you know, this is finally the prospect by which the whole thing could work, that it's taken a lot of creative thinking and a lot of showboating, a lot of people, you know, throwing yeah. shapes and trying to like, like really like, you know, throw their weight around and, and wield a lot of clout. But ultimately what it's boiling down to is that this really odd idea of a land border imposed at sea is something which just might be able to, to suit everybody. And if it does suit the Northern Irish Unionists, then the chances are it will suit a majority of um, Boris Johnson's, uh, you know, ever-whittling number of backbenchers. And he might just be able to get it through Parliament, which, of course, is the one thing that Theresa May was never able to do herself. No, she was not. All right. Still some work to do then, I guess, Gavin. Listen, thanks so much for your time. Not at all. Thank you. That's Gavin Riley, political correspondent for Virgin Media Television in Ireland. So today for our leadership series, we're talking about somebody who you almost could say needs no introduction in this province, as a matter of fact, because when you talk leadership, business, successful business people, the name Jimmy Patterson, of course, goes right to the front of the line, the top of mind. 
Now, for this local businessman, the key to his billion-dollar success, he always says, is the willingness to work hard and to give back to the community. Have a listen to this report from CKNW's Claire Allen. Jim Pattison was born in 1928 in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. And in 1935, he moved with his parents to Vancouver, the city he has called home ever since. And I grew up in the prairies. My dad came out here during the Great Depression, no job, no money. We didn't own a house or, or didn't own a car. But my parents couldn't have had better. I could not have had better parents. While attending UBC, Pattison paid for his tuition by washing cars at a used car lot and eventually by selling used cars to his fellow classmates. Pattison's success selling used cars led him to purchasing a General Motors dealership and the formation of the Jim Pattison Group in 1961. Today, the Jim Pattison Group is now the second largest private company in Canada, with over $10 billion in annual sales and more than 45,000 employees. I think a good leader starts with being setting a good example. If you talk about, well, let's work hard, I don't think you can go to Hawaii and, and deal with it on a cell phone from the beach. I think you have to be uh, there doing it yourself. Uh, I think that, uh, so that's, I think that's it. You have to set an example. And then, of course, the key is you can't do it alone, so you you have to select people. And the key is in any management group is selecting the right people. And that, of course, is not an easy job. And it's, it's one that we work very hard at, is, is working hard at selecting the right people to run our businesses and to grow the company. Pattison has business interests in over 85 countries, but has always managed to give back at home. Nobody gets where they are without somebody's help. Somebody helped me get a job. Somebody helped me get a bank loan. Everywhere along the line, someone has helped me. That's why we're interested in trying to help others. There's so many different kinds of ways you can help people. In our case, we have to decide what our focus is. And part of that focus has been healthcare. In 2017, Pattison donated $75 million to the construction of the new St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver a Canadian record for a private donation to a healthcare provider. This really ups the game to allow us to enhance that patient-focused care. It really allows us to um, do the things around technology and the things that we need to do to make healthcare better for the patients and the citizens in British Columbia. That was not the first time Pattison had donated to healthcare. His name is already on three lower mainland hospitals, and through his foundation, Pattison donated $50 million to a new children's hospital in Saskatchewan. Today what you have given us is the ability to create pediatric and maternal research opportunities right here at home. When it comes to the future, 91-year-old Pattison is optimistic about all the opportunities out there. When asked about the advice he would give someone setting out in business, he highlights three things. Number one, be honest. Start with that. Number two, people are everything. We have never actually focused on the money because you focus on what needs to be done. And if you're right, the money will come. If you're wrong, the money won't come. The most important thing, in my opinion, is certainly the importance of your reputation. For the Leadership Series on 980 CKNW, I'm Claire Allen. to give you an update on a story that Vancouver police are warning the public about. They don't do this very often, but uh, when they do, it definitely makes people kind of sit up and pay attention. So they say they are concerned about a high-risk sex offender now out of prison who is going to be living in Vancouver. Police say 46-year-old Trevor Leonard Smith poses a high risk of relationship and sexual violence, especially against children. So there's uh, much more to his background. He's a federal offender. Uh, They believe there are compelling reasons to warrant a public notification of his release. Remember, I said they don't do this very often. It's usually because they have some pretty big concerns, and they do, along with the Correctional Service of Canada. 
in this case. Now, Smith was previously convicted of sexual assault, possession of child pornography, uh, accessing child pornography, assault causing bodily harm, a whole bunch of charges there. If you'd like to see a picture, uh, you can go to our website, cknw.com, for more on that. So there's a whole list of things, of orders, that he has to comply with. But first, Sergeant Steve Addison from the Vancouver Police Department has actually been updating reporters on this case and has more details. So have a listen. Mr. Smith is being released from custody today and he plans to live in Vancouver. The Correctional Service of Canada, as well as the Vancouver Police, have assessed Mr. Smith as a high risk for relationship violence, as well as sexual violence, particularly against children. And we believe that circumstances exist to warrant a public notification of his release. Mr. Smith uh, was previously convicted of a number of offenses, including sexual assault, possession of child pornography, assault causing bodily harm, and breach of recognizance. Mr. Smith is a uh, Caucasian male. He's uh, approximately 5 foot 10, 170 pounds. Uh, he has gray hair and blue eyes. He sometimes uh, wears a beard. I believe he's currently clean-shaven. Mr. Smith was subject of a similar public warning in 2017 when he was released from custody, as well as the VPD advisory in 2000, uh, earlier in 2019 when he was taken back into custody as a result of uh, breaching the conditions of that previous release. Uh, He's currently released on a probation order which lasts for two years and there are a number of conditions that are attached to that probation order. Uh, I've uh, attached them all of the conditions in the news release. I'll just uh, go through a few of the the bullet points here. He's uh, to reside at a residence that's approved by his uh, probation officer. He is to advise his probation officer of any relationships or friendships he has with females. He is not to consume alcohol or drugs. He is to have no direct or indirect contact with anybody under the age of 16. And he's not to attend any place where a person under 16 is reasonably expected to be. So this includes places like swimming pools, parks, playgrounds, rec centers, uh, skating rinks. In addition to that, he's not to possess uh, computer equipment or access the internet without his probation officer's permission, and he's not to possess any data encryption or electronic storage devices or computer software without permission. Um, Mr. Smith will be monitored uh, during his release by Uh, investigators in the Vancouver Police Department's High-Risk Offenders Unit. The High-Risk Offenders Unit is a team of VPD officers, and their primary job is to monitor high-risk offenders who are released into the community to meet with them regularly and to make sure that they are abiding by their conditions. Uh, We hope that Mr. Smith is going to abide by these conditions, and we request that anybody in the community who has any information about him breaching the conditions uh, call 911 immediately so that we can investigate. All right, so that there is the Vancouver Police Department's uh, Sergeant Steve Addison talking about this case. Once again, they are warning the public, essentially. They're concerned about a high-risk sex offender who is now out of prison, and they believe he's going to be living in the city of Vancouver. His name is Trevor Leonard Smith. They believe he poses a high risk of relationship and sexual violence, especially against children. You heard the long list of court orders that Smith must follow there, like a long list of them, keeping the peace, good behavior, reporting to a probation officer, not consuming or even possessing any controlled substances like alcohol, no contact directly or indirectly with anyone under 16. And this one is important, right? Not to attend any public park, school ground, rec center, skating rink, swimming pool, public, any kind of public area like that where there could be anybody under 16 years old present. That's a pretty significant one there. So again, I, I would say check out our website, cknw.com, for more on that story. Uh, and if you have any, you know, any information about this, police are saying anyone who sees or knows of Smith violating any of those conditions is asked to call 911 immediately and let them know about that. It is time now for Travel Best Bets and Claire Newell is with us. Yes, she has some deals that we'll talk about coming up, but right now she's going to give us some tips on how to be a responsible traveler. What does that mean, Claire? 
I know. This is, you know, we started talking about like traveling green uh, probably a decade ago, which was good, but I think it's changed um, just because I, you know, I feel like it's a, a real emergency now and people are, are starting to really listen and, and try to make some changes. So, you know, we, I think we know the basics, um, some very simple ways, but I thought I would kind of dig a little bit deeper. Um, and one of the things I wanted to chat about um, quickly is about the fact that a lot of countries and destinations that are pretty familiar to us, like Hawaii and Mexican vacation spots, Key West, Florida, um, some Caribbean islands like Bonaire, are going to be st- um, banning any of the non-biodegradable sunscreens. So there's a couple of ingredients and chemicals that you need to look for to make sure that you have the right kind of sunscreen moving forward. A lot of them won't have the ban until, you know, early next year. Some are saying not until the beginning of 2021, but I think it's something that we should change now. Yeah, you can look for it. You can find a lot of them now if you just look at the labels. And a lot of them are actually ones that are um, for babies. You know, there's yeah. a brand called Think Safe, but even common ones like Australian Gold and Sun Balm and Super Goop. There's a whole lot of them, and they're getting more and more affordable. So it's one of the things that, you know, you know how um, when plastic straws were the kind of the yes. thing to, to forego, I got metal straws in people's stockings. So this year I'm actually going to get this for people and put it in their stockings Um just, I think it's really good. The chemicals that you're looking for both start with an O, octanoxate, and oxybenzone. I hope okay. I'm doing that right, but you can look for them. Um, and I would suspect that more and more destinations are going to start banning these. So I think it's a really good thing. I think it's something that we should look at. Um, the other thing is that our family just switched from plastic toothbrushes to bamboo. I don't oh, know if you guys have done nice. that. Yeah, and even... Um, like if someone offers us straws in a destination or bottled water, unless there is some, we're in some crazy place that, you know, you really have to watch the water. Nope. We'll just use our refillable water bottles and we will, you know, you know, refuse any straws and say, no, thank you. Um, a reusable shopping bag is in every one of our, our carry on luggage now. So if you go over or you're going shopping out in the destination, we always have the shopping bag. We don't take any single use plastics. I think it's easy for people to do that as well. Um, another thing is, is that with technology these days, I think it's, it's pretty fair to say that um, if you can do uh, without, without any traditional maps or tour books, to do it because you know you can get e-versions of them i know it's not always the same you and i are both tactile and we really like the paper especially for books but it is something that slowly i'm getting used to more and more i am reading books online i'm getting better at it i I, then i can't lend them out like i love lending out books people come to me so many people come to me and get book recommendations i pass them out left right and center so i'm recycling all the time (laughs) As long as you're recycling, I think that's that's good. Now, one of the things I heard today on uh, a Newswire was that small plastic toiletries bottles are going to be banned uh, in California yes. hotels soon. I heard this. Now, this is, yeah, and I think this is really good as well. It's just perfect to the point of the topic we're talking about today. Um, so you can utilize reusable travel size toiletries yourself. You can buy them and just keep refilling them rather than using the one-time purchases. If you want to do the one-time purchase, then just keep filling that bottle up. It doesn't have to be the same stuff that goes in it, um, but that's something that you can you can easily do. A lot of people are doing that these days. Um, souvenirs, just always be careful of what you're buying. Um, make sure that... I, I just feel like these days, I don't need many souvenirs. Just watch what they're, they're made of, if it's ivory or coral, animal skins, bone, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. A lot of that's illegal and... Um, Many, a lot of it's endangered as well. So just be careful what you're, you're buying. Um, and I know that for many people, the only time they're going to see some exotic animals are in zoos and aquariums. Oh, I find it really tough. You know, having seen them in the wild, yeah. I'm not, not a huge fan. I, I do um, encourage people, though, to look for the opportunities where they can go, like on a whale watching tour or something, and see them more in the wild than in one of those facilities. Absolutely. That's the way to go. As long as they're using um, sustainable practices and they're responsible about taking you into the wild and showing you those um, when they're when they are in their own environment. It's it's one of the best ways to see it anyway. 
I mean, really, who wants to see them in a cage? It's so sad. It just makes me want to cry my eyes out. It really is. It really is. Anyway, those are just some things that um, I was thinking off the top. But, you know, if there's some things that you can do as a family and maybe switching to those bamboo toothbrushes or getting the straws in your in your stocking, it might be some gifts that you, you can, can do for, uh, for the holidays. Well, that sounds like a plan. Now, let's send them somewhere for their holidays. Okay, so the first deal I've got for you is to the Caribbean. It's to Cayo Santa Maria, Cuba. So not Veradero, the, the, you know, the, the most popular destination there, but it's actually off the coast up north, and it's a beautiful spot, very good if you're looking for R&R. Um, November the 6th, right through until the 27th. So basically the month of November, there are departures, including airfare and seven nights in a beachfront all-inclusive resort for 739 Taxes of four thirty. It works out to eleven sixty nine all in. And uh, I walked in the office today, and I said, "So, did we get a lot of emails over the long weekend?" And um, <laughs> one of my colleagues, you sounded goes, afraid. What? You sounded almost afraid to I ask know. that question. I was a bit worried about how much volume, you know, how much, um, how many emails we would have to respond to and one of the comments back from someone who had checked through the emails was wow does everybody want to go to Bali and so this was just shared on social media over the weekend and and it obviously sparked a lot of interest so I wanted to share the deal it's to Bali the month of November or after the holidays January 10th through until the end of May so it's a big wide range of dates but it's airfare 12 nights hotel your breakfast every day Five sightseeing tours and the transfers for twelve ninety nine. Taxes of four thirty. It works out to seventeen twenty nine all in for a twelve night getaway, including the flight to Bali. Wow, that's a really good price. Yeah, it's a really good price. Just keep in mind the sale ends for that at the end of November. So if you want to go in the new year, just make sure you book it early. And then the um, the last one is a real bucket list. Um, the itinerary is outstanding, but it is a 12-night cruise that has you in Rio de Janeiro over Carnival. So this is a, a deluxe cruise. It's all-inclusive, and it's leaving on February the 18th. This is on my bucket list. I really want to go to Carnival. I think it would be a riot. I've just seen so many pictures, and I've done South America, but just to be there for that, that celebration. Yeah. Anyway, it's round-trip Buenos Aires, the air, a night's hotel in Buenos Aires. Then the 12-night deluxe all-inclusive cruise. So all your prepaid gratuities, transfers, and more. $29.99, taxes of $7.98. It works up to $36.97 all in. Wow, that sounds like a deal. All right, Claire, thank you. Thanks so much, Simi. That is Claire Newell from Travel Best Bets. Now, for more information about those deals or perhaps to find another one, you can check out their website, travelbestbets.com.